Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, if you're joining us, um, if you're a regular attender of Harvest, you'll know that this is a historic day. For nearly four years, we've been on a very long, winding journey on a very long sermon series called 100 Things you should know from the Bible. And would you believe today is message number 100 out of 100? (laughs) We thought this would never end, and there it is. We've come to the end of a very long journey together looking at 100 different passages in Scripture that we felt were exceedingly important for Christians to be aware of. And I thought a fitting passage would be this last little bit that Paul wrote. These words may be the very last words Paul wrote that were included in the Bible, and they come from the last chapter of his second letter to Timothy. And so I'm going to read the text with you, um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit <coughs> excuse me, their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. You know, not everybody gets to utter their last words consciously before an audience because not everybody sees their own death coming. But for those who do get that opportunity, so often you learn a great deal about their lives by that final summary statement. When somebody's asked, do you have any last words, what they choose to come up with will communicate a great deal about what their lives meant. It will reflect their personalities, their priorities, their passions. You'll see that in famous last words. Let me give you a few examples. Here's George Washington, a general, a leader all his life. Here are his dying words. I am just going, have me decently, he's saying this to his secretary, have me decently buried and do not let my body be put into the vault in less than three days after I am dead. Do you understand? As a leader, an administrator, somebody who is managing his own affairs even after he's dead. Here's Dwight Eisenhower. I've always loved my wife, my children, and my grandchildren. 
And I've always loved my country. I want to go. I'm ready to go. God, take me. Here's Leonardo da Vinci. I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. That's one haunted dude. He's got some issues. If he could say that, what is every other artist supposed to say? Here's Humphrey Bogart. I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. (laughs) You've never heard of this guy. I couldn't resist adding this guy's in. His name is Dominique Bouhors, and he's a 17th century French literary critic and a grammar Nazi. This guy was the most famous stickler for good grammar. His dying words were, I am about to or I am going to die. Either expression is correct. (laughs) That's jacked up. How could those be your dying words? These are Paul's, in a sense, dying words. He's not on his deathbed, but he knows the end is drawing very near. And so what you see in the words Paul chooses to write to his spiritual son, Timothy, near the very end, sum up well what his whole life has stood for, what what his life and his many years have meant. And so in verse 7, actually verse 6 and 7, he gives his powerful testimony. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Those are amazing, powerful words for someone to say as a summary statement for the life that they've lived. And I've been inspired and haunted by that testimony for a long time because I've really done some gut checks over the course of my life wondering, do you think I'm going to be able to say that when I'm at the end of my days? You know, I'm learning as I get older that it's so much easier to start a thing than it is to finish it. Finishing well is not that easy. I'm pretty tired. I think I've been running fairly hard for the Lord and for my family, for whoever I care about. I've been running pretty hard on behalf of many others for a very long time. And I've just realized I'm 44. If God grants me even an averagely long life, I am only halfway done. That means all the years in my rear view equal all the years in my windshield. Do you realize, I feel like I could go right now and I'm pretty tired. I'm like, I I think that I did a lot. I'm okay. And I'm only at the halfway mark. That tells me finishing well is not something I'm going to be able to do just by pulling myself up by the bootstraps. Finishing well is not simply an act of the will. We require a source of power because that's a very long distance to travel without one. Paul was facing his death with a piece of somebody who was finishing his life well, and he wanted this for his spiritual son, Timothy, and all the others who he'd influenced in his life. So he's offering some guidance. He's saying, look, I'm at the end of my days, and I think I can go to God in peace. That's not such a small statement, Timothy. It's taken something tremendous to get me the ability to say that. And I want to impart to you some guidance now so that even in your youth, you can live in such a way that when you get to the end of your race, you can say along with me, I fought well. I finished it. I kept the faith all the way through that journey. And so we're going to explore some of the guidance that Paul gives to Timothy. What does it take to finish well? to actually make it to the end of this race. Well, one of the things I clearly see here is we should live with the end in sight. We should live with the end in sight. I'll touch on that just briefly again at the end of the message. But look what he says. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Now, what's about to follow is a charge to say a loving command or exhortation to Timothy. But the stage that is set is this. I give you this command in light of the fact that we are not just living random lives. That at the end of it all, and even along the way, we are going to have to give an account to Jesus Christ for the life we lived. We are not living unaccountable lives But there is one named Jesus who sits in judgment over our lives. This is the judgment that is given to believers. The question is going to be this. 
How did you steward the years I gave you after you were born again? When you passed from death into life and you got this gift of salvation, what did you do with that gift on that foundation that was laid with the years I granted you in this earthly life? What he's saying basically is this. Knowing that someday we will give an account for our lives, knowing that our lives on this planet will not simply go on and on forever, let's keep the end in view as we're running the race. Because if you don't do that, you will lose heart and you will lose your way. He gives him this solemn charge. Don't waste your life, Timothy, because it will pass quickly and you will come to the end And the one thing none of us can do is control Z or control all delete this earthly experience. You get one shot and time moves in one direction. And when it's done, you can't reclaim the lost hours or the lost years. And so he says to Timothy, now, don't waste it. Remember the end. Keep it always before you. And I think think the gangsters of our present day um, invented this idea of the drink offering in a way. You know, when they pour one out for the homies, right? They're wasting that precious liquor for the deceased. It, that's the idea of a drink offering. Is it's just poured out over the altar. It's just, no one can drink it. It's just given to God. It's precious, and it's just being poured out onto the ground. And that's the way Paul said his life felt, was as if it was in a vessel. And God was just saying, I'm going to use this. And he just poured it out for his glory. There's nothing left in the cup And it's good to go to the eternal afterlife empty. What are you saving it up for anyway? All this energy, all these dreams, all this vision. What are you saving it up for? When you face your death, that's it. It's over. Whatever you have in the account is folly. And so he's saying, spend it for him. Pour it out. He says the reason to do this in part is because the end is coming. You know, in Psalm 90, verses 5 through 6, Psalm 90 records a prayer of Moses. And listen to these words. You sweep people away like dreams that disappear. Thank you. They are like grass that springs up in the morning. In the morning, it blooms and flourishes, but by evening, it is dry and withered. What Moses is saying is, man, Life is quick. It is so short. And he's probably an old man when he wrote this. Because I still remember when I was a young buck. And look at me already. I'm about to be buried. How does it go that fast? Everybody over 40. Can I get an amen? amen? Isn't it just so unfair how fast it went? It's like, what happened? When did I turn 40? And then some of you are like, 40. Man, dang, I wish I missed 40. Right? <laughs> You've moved on a little since 40, and you know, that day is coming fast for me. The older we get, the faster time travels. Why is that? Young people, man, it's such a waste. They're like, oh, it's just all day long, and just to sit around. You're like, you have no idea how fast it's going to move pretty soon. And so Moses, reflecting on this, it says in verse 12 of that same chapter, teach us to realize the brevity of life. And I be translated this way, teach us to number our days so that we may grow in wisdom. Because those who don't live with the end in sight, who don't understand that life is short, well, the way they will go is foolishness, the opposite of wisdom. In order to live with wisdom, you need to know that life is not infinite here. That it is going to end and we will give an account and that day of reckoning will come faster than you can imagine. And so the calling is this. Don't waste your life. Keep the end in sight the whole time you're running and learn to number your days. Uh, You know, another way of saying it is be alert. Pay attention because for so many people, life, listen to this. Life is what happens while we're not paying attention. Life is what happens while we're not paying attention. That's why so many people hit their 30s and they go, well, I can't believe this is where I ended up. Who wants to end up in a life? You're supposed to build a life. You're supposed to move into a life. But so many people hit their 30s and they complain incessantly about work and about their families and about their choices and about their health. They say, I can't believe this is my life. Well, that's because life is what happens when we're not paying attention. That's the sad testimony of so many people is when their eyes were not on the road in front of them, 
autopilot kicked in and they just ended up drifting somewhere. And one of my friends is fond of saying, we never drift into anything good. We never drift into anything good. And so I think it's important if you want to finish well, that you keep in mind that there is a finish line. Run towards it. Run for it. Here's another thing that I see Paul saying to Timothy. Focus on your calling. There's a lot of things that are going to demand your attention in this life's journey. A lot of things that will clamor for priority. I'll never forget a sermon that I once heard Dr. Charles Zimmerman preach at the One in Love conference. Otherwise known to most people, when I say One in Love, no one even knows that it's the oil conference out in Montrose, Pennsylvania. And he said this. He kept repeating this main, main idea over and over during the sermon. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. I, I think he must have said 10 other words. That, that line just kept getting repeated over and over. That's what I carried with me for years, and it just bugged me because I realized how easy it is to forget that. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Do you know how many days, because I'm a little bit anal retentive, um, you, you know, like, I, I love organizing. Some days I come into my office and I start cleaning my desk. And I get so caught up and I run out to the office supply store, buy some more organizational supplies, and I got everything all tidied up, and it's lunchtime. I haven't done any work. I've forgotten what the desk is there to facilitate. It's there to facilitate actual work, not neatness and arrangement and preparation for work that never happens. I am so prone to forgetting the main thing. And so it's good for us to be reminded, keep the main thing, the main thing. Unlike a lot of us, Timothy was called to be a pastor. And so even if that's not your calling, bear with me for a moment. If I were speaking at a pastor's conference, I would park on this verse and just expound for hours. But I'll just say this. What he's saying to Timothy is, look, you, you have a very specific calling, a purpose for being on the earth. Remember that, Timothy. Don't let a bunch of secondary things distract you from that to which God has called you. And he says, preach the word. In other words, work hard at the priority of your pulpit ministry. Don't give people stuff you came up with while you're at the red lights on the way to church. Work at it. Give them the best you possibly can from the pulpit. He also says, be ready in season and out of season. Like a doctor or like a police officer, you are never off duty. You're never off the clock. You must be ready to be at God's service 24-7. If the phone rings in the middle of the night, you don't say like everybody else, dang it. You say, Lord, help me. What is this going to be? You are always on duty. And he says, listen, correct, rebuke, encourage people with great patience and careful instruction. That is not casual, glancing blow ministry. He's not saying, you know, look at a large crowd, just kind of know a few people. He's saying, roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty, get involved, crush the grace with your own toes. Don't dial it in long distance. Don't delegate to other people what you are called to do. These are your sheep. Shepherd them. Take care of them. Don't do the quick and easy way. It says, look, with great patience, careful instructions, get involved in the drama of people's lives. Wrestle with them, fight with them, because they don't have another shepherd. You are their pastor. Be their pastor. Let this be the priority and the focus of your life. Now, I hope that the pastors at your church are doing that. If we fail to do that, remind us, because sometimes the main thing stops being the main thing. That is why we're here. We're not here to be administrators and governors and all that. We are here to pastor God's people. Now, you may not be a pastor, but you also have a calling. I believe every Christian has a calling to serve the Lord Jesus and to build his kingdom as a priority. There are people in your life you are called to minister to that most of us will never have access to. They don't want to hear from us. They don't want to receive from us. They are waiting to receive it from you. And what, what he's saying is, look, in life, there are a lot of things we must do to stay alive. You've got to eat. You've got to bathe. You've got to work, earn money, pay taxes, mow your lawn. I'm a new homeowner. I'm discovering all these things 
I really don't want to do that now I have to do. Sprinkling the lawn has become an obsession with me. I pray for rain because that's free money coming down from God. I'm supposed to get some at least 30% chance today. It's what a happy day. There's stuff you've got to do as a creature on this planet to biologically survive. And we have to do those things. You can't be lazy about bathing. You don't say, I don't bathe. I'm too busy in the Lord's work. Please bathe. You know, I mean, you've got to do that stuff. But what he's saying is don't ever lose sight of the fact that that stuff, the matter of creaturely maintenance, is not the calling of your life. Your calling is not to create the perfect dream house that looks like a museum or a photo shoot for Architectural Digest. If you've got that kind of time or if you've got staff, fine, try it. But the goal of our lives is not to create the ultimate creature maintenance system. That is not why Christians have been given the redemptive years. We are called to know and to love and to serve God and to receive his love for the rest of our lives as the first and leading priority of our earthly existence. You get that wrong and everything else you try to replace it with won't satisfy your soul and you'll be one of those perennial complainers or wanderers or obsessors because nothing will feel right to you. He also says to Timothy, look, no one's going to make it easier for you. People are going to get sick of sound doctrine. They don't want to hear the hard stuff. They can't handle the truth. How's that? It almost Nicholson-like. They can't handle the truth. So instead, what, a, what a, a, a visual phrase. Look at this. It says, their itching ears want to hear certain things. So they will find the people who sing to them the songs they like to hear. Songs about upbeat stuff, stuff that doesn't cost anything. Hey, you know God just really wants you to be happy all the time? That's what the gospel's about. He just wants you to be happy all the time. Are you not happy? Something's wrong. Let's get you happy. Well, that's a great message. I, I think Barney gives that message. It's not that God wants you to be unhappy. But see, that's what we want to hear is what is the path of least resistance? What is the path of least cost? What is the path that I can take sliding down a lubricated grade with no effort at all? And that's really what we want to drift into. That's human nature. And today, many people find a place that provides just that. It is one of our consistent prayers that we will not drift into that kind of church culture. But we will say what needs to be said. We will do what needs to be done. We will fight to honor the Lord even when it's costly and inconvenient and uncomfortable. But people aren't always going to want that. And so if you're called into something, it doesn't mean everyone's going to be like, um, you may be called to witness to the people in your workplace. I doubt that a lot of people are going to go, hey, um, Joe, you know, I noticed that giant King James Version study Bible on your desk. And on casual Friday, you always wear this, this retreat T-shirt with a cross on it. Um, you look like you got what I want. How do I get some of that? I'm listening. Go ahead. You know, that probably doesn't happen a lot. Instead, what you probably will get is apathy, cynicism, sometimes outright opposition. People don't want what God is giving away. And so in, in the process of exercising your calling, don't count on the world making it easier on you. It's just going to get harder and harder and harder. But he says, you, Timothy... Don't lose your way. Don't lose your focus in the midst of that hardship. Stay focused on what is the main thing. Fulfill your duties. But do you understand that so far, just those two things alone will not carry us to the finish line? Yeah, one day I'm going to die, and then one day I'm going to have to answer for this life. And so I want to stay focused on my calling. That's all good stuff if you are hardwired to be a mule. If the only thing you want to do in your life is work hard and then die, then yeah, so far I've just blessed the living daylights out of you, right? For most of us, that's just not going to be enough for 80 years of journeying. Yeah, you can keep the end in sight. You can stay focused on your calling. But in the end, God has not wired us just for work. He has wired us for relationship. So there must be some other component that's required to carry us to the finish line. Those first two things are important, but they're not complete. So here's the third thing, is build intimacy with God. You know, Paul's calling was never easy. 
He rarely had easy days. It seemed like from the start, his calling was, remember it was prophesied, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name, for my sake. Well, prophecies don't lie. Paul pretty much had a horrible uphill climb the entire time he was alive, which is why he could say things like, man, I'd rather die and be with the Lord, but I'm sticking around for all of you, okay? For your joy, not so much for mine. He had it difficult. And in this personal letter, he really shows a different side of himself, an intimate side, where he's, he's giving his son Timothy a little peek behind the curtain. Let me tell you what it's been like for me. And he begins to share very vulnerably some of the things that have really weighed his heart down and made it hard for him. <clears throat> you see the personal note in this. Do your best to come to me quickly. He's craving. He's lonely because he says, look, Demas, because he loved the world, and, and some people try to put a positive spin like he loved the world like God so loved the world, so he went out on missions. No. This is he loved the world like he loved worldly stuff. He compromised. He said, eh, you know, gospel living, austerity on one side, steak and red wine on the other side, just like Cypher in the Matrix, remember? I know the steak isn't real, but I choose the fantasy because it's delicious. That's the choice he made. He goes, look, I know this is eternal. This is only for a while, but this is so much better. And so he chose that, and he deserted Paul. You know that's going to happen to us? And it's such a discouragement when we see somebody who used to walk with us side by side towards Jesus, and one day they just say, you know what? I'm kind of over this. I actually don't care. And here you are just trying to be a faithful brother or sister saying, look, you know, God still loves you. you I know know what you're going to say. I've been there. I've said those words. The truth is a switch just turned off. A flame flickered out in my heart. I just don't believe it anymore. I don't care about it anymore. Have you ever had that experience with somebody who just checked out of something that you were still checked into? Whether it's friendship, the faith journey, a marriage, a partnership in business, it is heartbreaking when you're deserted and abandoned. There were also people who just moved on because it wasn't as if the entire kingdom of God orbited around Paul and his vicinity. God was active everywhere. And so there are times in the history of this church, I've had to say goodbye to so many dear friends. I've logged a lot of air miles flying out to see them because I miss them. And whenever I'm traveling to another city, I make it a point to stay a couple days if I can just to see those people who've moved on. But that's part of life, and it's discouraging at times. It's heartbreaking to have to part company with people you love. We just moved out of our neighborhood, and even though I'm happy in our new house, I'm miserable that we're not in our old neighborhood. i got to tell you, I loved our old neighborhood. I get a little emotional thinking about it because I, I remember all those days sitting at my little desk in my master bedroom, looking out of the window, seeing our driveway and all the kids playing and the neighbors walking around. And I just felt so much like I was at home. I don't feel that yet in the new house at all. I still believe we were meant to move and we have a calling in this new neighborhood. But my heart deeply misses where I used to live. It's still home for me. It's just the way life goes. And that's one of the hardships we endure is that we will say more, more goodbyes than we ever want to in life. Look what else he says. Hey, bring my coat. You know, just, it's so mundane, but he's like, I'm freezing. This house arrest is bogus. I'm freezing. And this fool don't put on any fires. I, I got to bring my coat, the good one, you know, the one I left. He probably has lots of coats. Because you know the good one, the comfortable one with that lining that I left that dude carpus at Troas. Bring that one. Don't just pick one up at the market on the way. Bring me my good coat. You know what that means? Sometimes it gets cold. It's just physically uncomfortable. He says, look, I want my scrolls. He's in house arrest. He's chained to some guard. He's got all this time. It just reminds me of the other day when Jeannie went to drop off Zoe at this thing. And she usually works on her laptop, you know, passes the time. And she left her laptop at home. She's like, gulp. Two hours at this ridiculous kid's place. Got nothing to do. And it was just galling to her that she didn't have the resources she needed to make the most of that time. And I'm sure Paul, like any pastor, if you don't have that one book that you need and you're just sitting there like, ah, Dr. Steve just moved all his books to the office so he could have them ready at his disposal. I think that's one of the challenges we're going to go through in life is that we're going to lack resources that we need. Now, this is not earth shattering stuff, 
But nonetheless, it's part of the picture of the hardship of the journey of following Christ. Along the way also, there'll be guys like Alexander in your life, the metal worker in Ephesus, who did a great deal of harm. In other words, this guy, for some inexplicable reason, decided, Paul, I hate your guts. I am your enemy. I just recently had such an interesting conversation with somebody about this idea that when we read the word enemy in the Bible, it doesn't really register because it's not typical in, in the year 2012 in the United States to have an enemy. You have people you don't like. You have annoying people, people you avoid in the hallway. But an enemy, a sworn enemy, a rival. But you know, this person I was talking to had this strange experience, maybe for the first time in adult life, that an enemy rose up against them. And as they're telling the story, I'm like, yep, yep, that's it. That's what we call an enemy. This person is out to get you. Unprovoked. They hate you. They want to thwart your ambitions. They want to work against you. Do you have the experience of having enemies in your life? I'm just so curious. I just want to know. If you've ever had an enemy or have an enemy, could you just raise your hand? I just want to see. All right, so we have a bunch of really popular people. A few of you have enemies. And so that's going to happen in life. Why are you so out to get me? What is your problem? What did I ever do to you? Well, it's going to be part of the journey. Sometimes everybody just abandons you. Look, in my first defense, I could hear crickets chirping. I looked around, I'm like, where is everybody? Where is everyone I spoke up for? Everyone I influenced led to the Look, Nobody. Sometimes that's going to be a part of the hardship of the journey. And so Paul is giving this long testimony. Of, this has not been an easy road for me. I've been abandoned. I've been betrayed. I've been opposed openly. I've been suffering physically. I've been under-resourced. It has not been a very easy journey for me. But then he, when he's crescendoing, you start to feel really sorry for the guy. But then in verse 17, he gives this powerful concluding testimony. But, but... The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be proclaimed, fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is what we need in the church today. We need a fresh reminder that we have asked people to do what only God can do. The reason some of us are so disappointed, so depressed, is we have given other human beings so much power to define our well-being. You hurt me and now I can never be well again. When life gets hard for some of us, all our hopes are placed in people. And when those people don't come through, there is nobody behind us to catch us. And we feel like we're spiraling out of control into despair. All that's showing you is that you may have had a Christian religion, but you don't have the Lord side by side with you. That's what's missing in your life. People will abandon you. People will let you down. Some of the ones who made a covenant promise to you will break that promise. Deal with it. You don't have to accept it or be happy with it, but you've got to acknowledge that's going to happen in this earthly journey. No one gets off scot-free. Nobody gets through life without hurting, without experiencing difficulty, abandonment, betrayal, opposition. All of this is going to be part of it. Some of you are well-fed and rich now. You may pass through a season of terrible poverty before this journey is done. That's life. If you've asked your husband or your wife or your children or your friends, hold me together, be my hope. Give the infrastructure, the scaffolding to my well-being. You're done. Because those people will never be able to bear that burden faithfully. If you're counting on other people to hold you together in the worst of days, then you don't understand the full benefit of what a relationship with God can be. This is Paul's testimony. When I hit... Look, it's not, he's not saying people are... They don't matter... But there are going to be always, for everyone, a season where even the people closest to you stab you in the back. Walk out the door. You, you're left going, what is happening to my life? That's going to happen to all of us. In that moment, what is revealed so clearly is where you are with God. 
And if you've been building intimacy with God, then when all the world betrays you, you can say with Paul, it was amazing. Everyone left me, but God stood by me and gave me strength. This is why it is so important every day to build this intimacy with God. We don't tell you to have quiet times just because we're Pharisees and want you to have a little checklist done. But because if you don't go to God in the good times, you won't go to him in the bad times. If it is not your habit to walk with Jesus daily, then when you need him most, he will be a stranger to you. Your heart won't instinctively turn to him because it's not its habit to turn to Jesus. So I charge you like Paul charged Timothy. Build this intimacy with God. Through Jesus Christ. Because someday when you hit rock bottom, Jesus will be the only one who's there for you. I say this not out of a spirit of harshness or correction, but out of compassion. Because it has been heartbreaking for me to watch people completely disassemble, unravel because of a disappointment. And I understand then that the person who has wounded them is their savior and their savior has failed them. You have a savior who never fails. Do not ever trade in Jesus for a fallible human being. Let me give you one last thing. Invest in good friendships. Throughout this entire last chapter, and in fact throughout the whole letter, there is such a tone of intimacy that you pick up. This is not Paul giving doctrine and teaching, though he is, but this is Paul really writing a letter to someone he loves. And so it's, I always feel embarrassed reading it sometimes because I feel like I'm eavesdropping on a private communication. Do you know what I mean? There's such a personal sense to this particular letter. Things like, come before winter. This needfulness, this desperateness, this hunger for relationship. And what you see is, you know, sometimes we have this wrong idea of the Apostle Paul that he was this driven type A, impersonal guy. For him, he was just a field marshal moving people from left to right. He didn't need people. He just needed God. You know, there's no such thing as a person who just needs God, doesn't need people. You know why I know that? It's because God didn't design us that way. Remember in Genesis 2, it was, it was God who says to Adam, hey, it's not good for you to be alone. And Adam says to God, what, what are you saying? I'm with you. Yeah, I know, but you're still alone because I didn't just make you for me. I made you for others. There's no such thing as a person who doesn't need others. The only reason we say things like that is because sin, pride, or pain has caused us to harden our hearts and pretend we don't need anybody. There's a person in this room who legitimately does not need others. If you really believe that, you are deluding yourself. And pain has made you say that, or sin has made you say that. Paul needed people. I don't think he could have made it to the end without people. And even now, as he's saying, Jesus was my most faithful companion, he still cries out, but come as fast as you can. I need my friends around me. I'm going to leave the earth, and I don't want to leave it by myself, chained to some guard. I want my friends near me when I go. I hope that I'm surrounded by my children and my grandchildren and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren when it's time for me to go. I hope that my good friends my church folks are around me. I hope I come up with something good to say for my last words. Not did Call of Duty 16 come out or something like that. You see the personal note in this. Do your best to come to me quickly. Get Mark and bring him with you. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. That's a very special friendship. One of those early friendships. Remember those? The people who got you started in life and have been shed along the way? Might be time to pick up a phone and reconnect with some of those folks who brought you through some of the hardest times of your early life. Just say, hey, remember me? He sends greetings from other friends who are in the same town as him. There's a sense in which, for Paul, people are not background scenery, but friendships matter. And when Paul is mentioning these names, they're not just people who are prominent figures. He has to give some lip service to them. These are people he has a story with each one of them. 
Priscilla and Aquila in another place, it says, man, they risked their lives for me and for the gospel. They almost died in our friendship because of this partnership. That's a story right there. I would love to hear that story. Don't you have people like that? Stories were written in your lives. Stuff that you can't even make up, like stuff that happened to you. You've been through thick and thin, through some of the worst times that person has walked with you. You will owe them forever. That matters. But friendships, like anything else, will fade and, and, and out of existence if they're not cultivated. And so I charge you because it matters in this life journey. It is one of the primary ways God uses to keep us going to the end. Build good friendships. Work hard at them. Don't be a passive and lazy friend. Don't be the friend who when they call and say, hey, what are you doing Friday night? Don't be the guy who goes, it all depends. What do you want? Just be like, hey, friend, if you're doing something Friday, I'm with you. I don't care if we're we're making cards and stamping and stuff like that. I'm a dude, but I don't care. If it's with you, I'm with you. Be that friend. Don't be the friend who immediately goes, well, I'd be more comfortable just sitting in my underwear, eating brats and watching Glee back episodes. I mean, is that really? Your friend is trying to connect with you and that's your answer. I'd rather just, just veg, curl around like a creature. If you don't invest in those friendships, they will disappear one by one over time. Every uncultivated friendship disappears. It's just the way it goes. You know that because your life is littered with old friends who are not current friends. Isn't that true? I go through my uh, picture albums, and I see pictures of me where I'm like, I have my arm around someone, we're laughing like this. I go, who the heck is that? I once knew them well enough that we were laughing together. My hand was all like on their body. And we're like, and I don't even know their name anymore. How does that happen? Am I really that old? I know the face vaguely, but I'm like, what context? Where was this even? Who is this person? What's worse is that I'll speak at a retreat. They're like, hey, how's it going, Dave? I'm like, darn it. I just saw your picture last week. I don't even know who you are. Do you see what happens when we don't cultivate something? It just fades out of existence. It dies. That's happening right now to some friendships which God has raised up to get you through this journey. Some of you are doing that to your own spouses. They may not be complaining, but that doesn't mean you're doing well. That person you live with, their heart may be fading quickly. Saying, you know, we don't even have a marriage anymore. We have a co-domesticating arrangement for roommates, business partners. Maybe you're not married, but you're doing that to a girlfriend or boyfriend or to your parents who you live with, maybe. You're not going to have them around forever. These are precious years you have before you take off, and you're not making the most of them. I'm so thankful for Facebook. It is an annoyance and a curse on our society in some ways. But I'll tell you one way I'm so thankful is I have rekindled friendships with people I thought were dead to me. People I never in a million years expected to find again have found me on Facebook. And I'm so grateful for that pleasant surprise. And I've had some amazing conversations with people just reminiscing and saying, could it be possible that we started our life together? Maybe we could finish it together. Maybe you don't just have to be a memory in my scrapbook. Maybe today we could rekindle this and you could be my faithful friend to the end. I'll just wrap up by saying this. Um, Since moving to a new house, that's my elliptical machine in the basement. (laughs) Several of the men in this church are intimately attached to that. We carried it piece by piece down and uh, my son and I assembled it and I have been using it fairly faithfully. And let me tell you my experience of working on that machine. I'm always in a great mood when we're starting. I'm going to get so sexy, and I'm doing it. But, you know, about two-thirds of the way into my workout, something starts happening. I hit this wall where I just go, it would feel so good to just stop right now. Let me be real honest with you. About a third of the time, I cave. I just stop. I go, you know what? Forget it. No one's going to know. I look around. No one sees me. They don't know how long I've been. I'm like, I'm just going to stop. I don't want to push it too. I'm old, you know. 
And let me tell you something. When I quit early, there's a relief there. My body's comfortable again. But it nags me all day long. There is a relief that comes from bailing out early, but it's so different from the relief I feel when I push it all the way through to the end. And when that thing beeps and the timer goes off and I'm done, and I'm so physically miserable, but in my heart I've climbed the mountain, I've done it. And then I rest, and there's that relief. And that relief feels so different than the relief of premature ejection from the pilot seat. See, I know that there are people for whom life gets really hard and everything drives their finger to the eject button. Bail, bail, just get out now. That's what you want to do out of a marriage, out of a friendship, out of your faith, out of your family. You just want to push that button, be gone. I'm going to walk out and I'll never see this again. It's so tempting when it gets hard. And the truth is there is a release that comes when you do that. But it's never the full release God plans for us. When we finish the race... We see it through, and then we take our rest. And we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into your rest. That's a different kind of relief. That's the rest, the peace that our hearts yearn for. I know that right now some of you are right there in that place. That figure is just hovering over the eject button. You're like, please just let me push it. It would be so easy if I could just escape. If you're in a truly physically harmful, dangerous environment, situation, talk to someone. Maybe that's what you need to do. But in 99% of the cases, what I'm saying to you is don't do it. Run the race. Do what it takes to finish well. That's the legacy we'll leave for our kids, for our church, for our world. It's easy to run. It's not that easy to finish well. It's my hope and prayer for all of us that that's exactly what we'll do, without exception. When we get to the twilight years, when we get to the end, and that finish line is right there, I hope we'll be able to look around and see one another's wrinkled, tired faces, and we'll high-five each other as we wait in line in heaven for the new body line. You know that new body center where you get the new one? You're like, God, thank you. This is getting so ratty. Give me that new one. I want a six-pack this time. You make me at least six-four. New ankles, everything. It's going to be great. And I hope that we see each other finishing well. Amen? Let's pray together. You know, I'm thankful to God that he's brought us through this series. And I hope that this message represents having finished well. I know that life is hard. For some of you right now, life today is very hard. And there are things happening that make you wonder, can you really keep going? It's so discouraging. I want to tell you it is possible. One day, an end will come. All the things that are hard today won't be hard forever. And one day, God will call us home, but he will also ask us to account for our lives. So I charge you to live with that in mind. It's not going to just keep going on. Remember this too. If you are in Christ, there's a purpose for your life. We're not just here to exist as creatures. We are here to do something in the name of Jesus. It can be tempting to drop out early to lose focus, to live just to build a creature maintenance system in your life. Don't do it. Fight to keep the main thing, the main thing. And as you do it, remember this, along the way, everyone you know at some point will disappoint you. A little, a lot, nobody is perfectly faithful but Jesus. And so if you're wise, you will build your strongest relationship with the most faithful friend. Your friends matter, but Jesus matters more because he's the only one who will not abandon you, oppose you, betray you, walk out on you. And when everyone else does that, you can say with Paul, but the Lord stood by my side and he gave me strength. 
you build that relationship first and most. Then remember this too. God intended for us to live our life walking with friends. Don't neglect the people he has given to you. Work on those friendships and on those family relationships. Work on them. Even today, as you walk out of this place, do something that builds those relationships. If we do those things, I think God will prove himself so faithful. We can say with Paul, by his grace, I've fought the good fight. I've run the good race. I finished it, and I kept the faith. I'm ready to go home. I really hope we can say that I'm going to give you a minute just to respond to the Lord in your own voice. And then I'll pray for us. God, we believe in faith that you have not made any of us or redeemed any of us so that in our final years we could spend our days playing golf, decorating our houses and eating at Old Country Buffet and just waiting for death to come. That is not who we are in Christ. We believe that you have given us the gift and privilege of a calling, and that by your grace, we will be given the strength and the means to carry it out until we are finished here on earth. That one day, when our world's earthly work is done, we will receive your welcome. We will enter into our eternal, everlasting rest. Help us to finish this life well. To not flame out in our youth. We don't want you to be a memory in our twilight years. We want you to be our companion and our Lord, our ever-present Savior. And so it is our prayer today for each of us that we will, by your mercy, finish well. Help us to go out from this world with the peace that Paul enjoyed. The peace that came from fight well fought, a race finished, a faith kept. And we know that you're the only one who can help us. So come, help us live in a way that we will finish and we will finish well. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.